So you uh, you didn't win your election bid, huh? No, and I'm I'm fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> was it I, close? It, you know, it was closer than it had any right to be. I didn't come in last. Okay. Which is bananas, because I talked to the other guy who did come in last, and he did so much more work than me. <laughs> um, I felt almost bad about it. Like, I kept telling him, like, you're going to trounce me. You know, because you like it's a local election. You got to block walk, right? You got to knock on doors, and he's like, yep. I knocked on every door twice. Like I walked this whole place twice. I was like, that is insane. How do you have the time for that? And it's because he's like, he doesn't have like a child, and I don't know like what other stuff he does, right? And yeah, I was just like, okay, this guy's gonna destroy me. And then the other guy who I only got eight votes less than oh. spent like five thousand dollars, and I spent. Maybe seven hundred, and <laughs> most of that was the yard signs because wow. they are shockingly expensive. I bet. Yeah. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode three nineteen of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie loving podcast of the Matinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. How is your twenty twenty four going so far? Have you taken down the tree and the lights yet? Are the you on tree? track? To- Oh, I thought you were asking me. <laughs> no, I mean, have you taken down the tree yet? The tree is down. The lights Good. are still up. Are they lit? Because the lights are lit. Yeah, I no. got to take them down, but it's been raining a lot, and I'm also getting over a cold. So. Just unplug them. That's, that's, that's from my, I am of the I am of the opinion that as of January sixth, the lights are disconnected. They can stay hanging as long <laughs> as you need until it warms up. But just unplug them, and that's half the battle. That is fair. There we go. Are you on track now? Now, to be clear, Mister Guest, shut I, up. there we go. Are you <laughs> are you on track to make your Goodreads goal? Have you stuck to your resolutions? Yes, no, something in between. It's funny how with New Year we want to start fresh, isn't it? I mean, when you think of it, January first is as arbitrary a date as any. One could just as easily dedicate themselves to goals and projects and fresh starts on. January 15th or March 21st or April 3rd. It's just a starting point. Here on the Matinee Cast, we have no audience-facing resolutions, though if you must know, behind the scenes, I am resolved to being a little bit more organized. However, one of my personal resolutions was, is, more get-togethers. To end the passing thought of, we should get together sometime and lock some time into the calendar. That's what I'm doing, people. You can hold me to it. That goes for this show, too. And to that end, I'm happy to be bringing back an old friend back onto the show to start a new year. He is a man of many talents. He's a writer, a distiller, a podcaster, politician, and all around bon vivant. We are uh, talking to the head honcho over at the Film Stage Podcast. He's here with us tonight, straight from the Beltway. Brian J. Rowan is here. How are you, sir? Zutelor, I'm happy to be back. I don't know why, but you calling me a bon vivant, I was like... <laughs> you, know, you want to play that? I like it, yeah. I mean, I'm starting to see why you lost, but I can... Uh, <laughs> there we go. Um, on episode 319, we will be discussing The Iron Claw. It's going to be a spoiler-laden conversation, because I don't see how you can talk about this movie and not get into spoilers. We're going to mm-hmm. flip the record over to play the other side, but first, we need to learn more about Brian. This is Know Your Enemy.
Brian has been here a bunch of times, so here is the recap. He first arrived on episode 63. We talked about The Dark Knight Rises. We learned the first film he saw in a theater with Jurassic Park. The last movie he'd seen at the time was Win Win. The worst film he's ever seen is Remember Me. His unseen classic or essential is Metropolis. The film he wished he had made is The Tree of Life. Brian returned on episode 81. We talked about the incredible Burt Wonderstone. We learned the film he did, but nobody else does, is Battle Los Angeles. The film everybody else likes that he does not is Cloud Atlas. The last movie to make him cry was Les Miserables. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Michael Fassbender. And the next movie he was watching was Rust and Bone. Brian returned on episode 217. We talked about High Flying Bird. We learned the films that made his love of film turn a corner are The Thin Red Line and The Fountain. His first date movies were Mission Impossible 2 and Closer. His sick day movie is Shame. The last movie to leave him speechless was Darren Aronofsky's Mother. And his film epitaph would be from Unforgiven, Deserves, Got Nothing to Do With It. Right return on episode 236, we talked about Knives Out. We learned the film he really digs but never needs to see again is Inland Empire. The film that genuinely freaked him out is The Descent. The film that always makes him laugh is 21 Jump Street. His favorite movie soundtrack is Train Spotting. The movie he loves, but seemingly nobody else has heard of, is The Page Turner. Next was episode 249. We talked about Mank. We learned that when he goes to the theater, he likes to sit in the middle, three quarters back if it's a normal cinema, or two thirds back if it's a smaller indie house. If he could go on a date with any movie character, he'd be going out with um, Rapunzel from Tangled or Elle Woods from Legally Blunt. The dirtiest movie he's ever seen is something called Sweet Movie. His favorite black and white film is King Kong. The film he likes but nobody would expect him to is West Side Story. Finally, um, a little around this time last year, we talked about Bones and All on episode 297. We learned that at home or in a theater, his movie snack of choice is a bag of chips. A uh, movie world that he would like to spend a day in is The Purge. Discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> His favorite good scene in a bad movie is the party hangout in Avengers Age of Ultron. The most violent movie he's ever seen is The Proposition. A movie monologue he would most like to deliver is the always be closing speech from Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Brian is a seven-timer, Mr. Rowan. Time for the new questions. If you met a person who had never seen a movie before, what would you show them? I put a lot of thought into this. Well, that's I, um, good. I appreciate I that. Too much thought into this because I realized at a certain point I was imagining not quite a caveman, but definitely a more primitive human. <laughs> okay. Because I was like, how did this person never see movies before? And then I got concerned because I was like, if we show him a movie of a train leaving a station, they might run away screaming. Right. And then I was like, no, no, no. Let's just let's just move on. Let's, you know, a person from a completely civilized, advanced culture, but they have no clue what a movie is. So once I got over that mental hurdle, I landed on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Interesting. Why that one? I thought about what movies when I was a child really activated something in me. Not in the like what turned a corner where. Sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what's the movie where I watched it and I was suddenly like, how did they do that? That's incredible. This is beyond what I would see in real life. And Raiders of the Lost Ark was one of those ones where I remember every scene I had to ask my parents a question like, so, you know, just imagine me as like a four or five year old. What what happened there? How like how did they find this place? My parents would be like, well, they build a set or there's a matte painting. And then I'd be like, so what about this part where he's under the truck? And it's like, oh, well, there's a stunt person and they do all this stuff. And I was like, what about the part where he shoots this person? Oh, there's a squib. But I also, this is the first movie this person's ever seen. Right. 
I don't want to bore them. I don't first, want to- first of all, first of all, just before you continue there, can I like send some props to your parents for the immense amount of patience that that must have taken? <laughs> you know, they probably never even thought twice about all of this stuff, and they were explaining it to you with the patience yep. of Job. There was a point where I saw Face Off, I think, because okay. there's a shootout in a church, mm-hmm. and I asked my parents. How do they get the church's permission to just blow it up? <laughs> it seems pretty sacrilegious. It's like, it's not a real church. It's a, it's a fake church. Okay. And also, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I remember being like, when was this movie made? Right. It was made in the 80s. Okay. Uh-huh. How long ago was World War II? <laughs> so World War II was like, you know, 50 years ago. Okay. I want to send your but parents a basket place. of mini muffins, I swear. <laughs> I like, but this takes place in World War II like you know i just like like i it was the movie where i was like right a movie is fantasy but again this person's never seen a movie before yes and i don't want to show them some like you know long boring bellatar thing where they're like i don't understand the appeal i want them <laughs> to enjoy themselves and i think harrison ford punching nazis <sighs> everyone's gonna be into that and it's I, steven spielberg i mean like in terms of like a master of the popcorn aspect of cinema like sure. this is the guy to do I, I I agree. Um, I'm still like really truly. I want to dedicate this entire episode to your parents. <laughs> they were in luck because this was during the time of movie magic being on the Discovery Channel. Oh my goodness! So they could be like, "Hey Brian, guess what? Tonight there's an entire TV show only about how they make movies," and I was in. I bet. Yeah. Um, I now first of all, it's funny because like. When I write these questions, I think of my own answers, and I think of what I think is going to be the general answer to to this question. I did not come across this one, either in my own answering of the question or so far uh, to the people who I have asked this of. Um, and I, I fully approve of this answer. Like, I mean, not that it matters. I could disagree with you. <laughs> here, here, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. change it. Yeah. Just yeah. You yeah. Try again. This movie, it's got... Thrills. It will terrify you in places. It's got laughter. It's got advent. It's got everything you would want in a nice, tidy, compact little, you know, hundred and ten minutes. Any aspect of of movie making that you could want to talk about is embodied in this film. And again, it's crackerjack. It's fun. Like mm-hmm. that was a big part of this question for me. I don't want to say it's fun. Yeah, like, and the but also like, not so scary that they're going to be like, "Oh my word, what are we doing here?" <laughs> I don't want to say that the dialogue in this movie doesn't matter, but I think it doesn't matter that much. Like I think if one did not speak English, they could probably follow along with what's happening in this movie no sweat. It's not exactly complicated. No, no. It's it is I mean, there's some great lines, you know, bad dates. Yeah. Um, but like yeah, it's and that's one of Spielberg's greatest accomplishments as a director is you don't need the dialogue. Almost any one of his films, just from the way he frames things, just from the way things happen, and just from his pure visual panache, yeah. he, he gets everything across that you need. And then the, the dialogue is like a nice little bonus. That probably comes from, you know, the whole thing he did growing up, like doing all those 16 millimeter mm-hmm. movies where, you know, like he probably couldn't have a whole lot of dialogue in them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, because they, they weren't really recording much for sound. So that that probably forced his hand on on in terms of how he would tell the stories he tells. And, and they, it makes it more universal. So I good work. I'm like a yeah. fan of the Fablemans, but I appreciated the insights it gave into his backstory in terms of like, 
like I don't know. I didn't like his mom in that movie, <laughs> which is like kind of a problem in the Fablemans. Right. But like in terms of like watching him make the movies, I was like, why isn't this the whole film? Right. <laughs> Like that uh, was awesome. Yeah. I will I will repeat what my guest on the Fableman's episode said. Uh hopefully sometime before the whole House of Cards comes crashing down, Criterion releases the Spielberg 16 millimeter movies. Brian J. Rowan, what movie best embodies your personality? Manchester by the Sea. No. Um <laughs> I thought about saying that for a bit, but I thought that was too dark. So instead I'm gonna go with the lighthearted a hidden life. <laughs> Why that? So I wrote like a 3000 word thing on my personal site, brianjerowan.com about a hidden life. I think it's an incredibly powerful movie. I think it's, especially as a Catholic, it's a really great look at kind of the best that you can hope for of, of having a religious faith and the way that it'll help you to stand up, even in moments where it feels as though what you're doing is pointless. Um, I think that's one of the most powerful things in the movie is this guy is a martyr who is basically promised that no one will ever know that he was a martyr. So he's not like being fed to the lions. He is just being forgotten. He is being erased. And and he is one man in this system. And it seems pretty meaningless for him to throw away his life like this when he has children and a wife. But then you, you, you watch the movie and you realize that in seeing the story, you'd be like he's one like he has actually convinced some people because you're sitting there watching it and you know about it and i think that all of his all of his actions and everything that he says and a lot of the the things that are spoken about religion and governments in that movie ring very true to me and so were i were i to have to speak with someone and show them a movie i assume this person has seen movies before um and show them something that embodies me personally. The movie that I would want to reflect who I am. I think a hidden life is pretty perfect. Also like I love mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice capper. Um, I mean like people may not realize that for a long time I had a running joke that the movie, you know, not so much the movie, but the character that embodied your personality was Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Yes. (laughs) Like you would tweet something that was so maudlin and I would usually just respond with a <laughs> gif of Eeyore in the rain. Yep. You know, and, and then just to, you know, just to put the cherry on the top, Brian would usually like it. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. You were okay. right. Like, you were not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I am not going to make any kind of like jokes about such things because that was actually quite profound and introspective. Weird for me for how much I enjoy the movies of Malik. I still haven't caught up with a hidden life and I have zero excuse because like every type of channel that I subscribe to it's there. Uh, I I feel like I just haven't had that little three hour block that I want to give to something like that, but I am going Mm -hmm. to move it up the queue in honor of that. So by the time this episode drops, I will have watched a hidden life and uh, thank you for steering me towards it. That was uh, beautiful and profound. And uh, you know, you can read my crazy 3000 word long. I will, I will link (laughs) it into the show notes and I will read it. I, uh, I can make a, make a promise of that. Uh, So, on another note, this is actually really interesting given what I know of you. What is a movie you hated on first watch, but eventually came to enjoy? Oh, God. All right. So this is hard because I rarely change my mind on a movie. That's great. That's good that you can admit that. Yeah. I just, you know, I know me. You know, I just like, I, so if I hate a movie, 
I don't know what changes are going to happen in my life to make me suddenly like it. <laughs> um, that's just the thing. Like, I don't know. People will say like, I really like there was one time on the podcast, my podcast when, um, to the wonder came out and my two co-hosts hated it. And I spent the entire podcast being like, don't you understand? Don't you see like, don't you, this is what it's about. Right. <laughs> and so later on the year, top 10 lists roll around and yeah. we're recording our top 10 podcast yeah. and my number seven or whatever is to the wonder. Right. And then the next guy, like, you know, it goes on and on. And at some point one of them is like, my number three is to the wonder. <laughs> I was like, what the, sh- are you kidding me? <laughs> and then one of the other guys is like, my number one is to, to the, the wonder. wonder right. I was like, all right, I'm losing my, how is this possible? You gotcha. both turned around on this. Okay. You're all wrong, but okay. All right. Well, whatever. Anyway. So <laughs> I had to, I had to read. I say back. that. I say that as a fan. <laughs> I had to go way back. The movie that I hated when I first watched it was Sleepless in Seattle. Oh my God. Because I was a literal, actual child. (laughs) And my parents were watching this or my sister was watching this. And I was like, this is boring. I don't care. Like, you know, I had no concept of romance. I had no concept of this, this crazy thing called love. Um, I didn't understand any of the pop culture references. I didn't get it. Great. I have turned around on this so hard that the day I got divorced (laughs) in order to watch something that made me believe in the possibility of finding love again, I turned on sleepless in Seattle and I laughed and I cried and I loved it. And I've watched it a couple of times even since then. It's so sharply written. It's so wonderfully made. Every actor in it is incredible. Even Bill Pullman is the poor guy who gets left. Right, he's right. He's so, like, full of grace. Yeah. And, like, the way that that whole thing is handled is so... He's like, you know, I don't want to be with someone who doesn't feel that way about me. And why would you want to, you know, have to, like, so no, go, do your thing. And it's, oh, man, it's so wonderful. It, it's it's funny, because there are some movies that were above my pay grade when I was a kid that I clung to on first watch. Like, Platoon. Platoon should have sailed right the heck over my head as a little eight-year-old kid. But I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, you know, for, for all of the, the the darkness and the back and forth and the push and pull and everything, like, I, I got it. You know, I didn't get it to the point I get it as an adult. But as much as a nine-year-old can understand Oliver Stone, I did. So, but the thing is, generally speaking, I wish growing up I was Abby Hoffman in Sleepless in Seattle who watches... <laughs> an affair to remember and just falls head over heels for it. I was not that kid. You know, mm-hmm. I, there were a lot of movies that I watched way before I should have. And I'm like, this movie's trash. Now, yeah. you know, th- they weren't sleepless in Seattle, but th- there's, I think <laughs> there's something to be said for, I saw it as a kid and I'm coming back to it and I, and I, and I get it now, even though as a kid, I was, I, I think that's, that's saying that you were, you know, not the, not the greatest kid or not the brightest kid um what i what i dig about that too is one of the ways i can tell that i've evolved as a human being and i think we're probably gonna that's gonna be a kind of a recurring theme of this episode mm-hmm. is the same i want to say it was the same month that we lost nora efron we lost tony scott yeah and 
growing up as a kid from from jump one of the movies i adored was top gun but yet as a grown-up losing Nora Ephron meant more to me than losing Tony Scott. Losing Tony Scott still meant more to me, but that's like, I, I love Tony Scott. And actually you want to talk about movies that like make you cry, like man on fire. Yeah. You no, know? like it, I, Tony Scott, I feel like I love Top Gun. Top Gun's incredible. But like <laughs> some of his later movies were like, sh- just so beyond what they needed to be. Yeah. And like, yeah, I just, I was like, man, and Unstoppable was his last film and Unstoppable was incredible. And I mean, the the thing is, is that in case anybody wants to really think about like how, how hard what he was doing was look at most of the action movies that are getting made now and they're all trash. Oh yeah. Compared to, you know, even compared to a trashy Tony Scott movie, but we're getting off topic. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I know. I, I I appreciate that you. I appreciate that your your heart grew two sizes. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, you 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 came around to something that is, you know, what somebody would say is like not necessarily typically Rowan. So so that's that's a great answer. I love I love that. And I love that. You know, growth. That's always a good thing. Yeah, I uh, love rom coms. Rom coms are great. They I, are. You know, yeah, no, there is. I love a good rom com. Really. Have do. you seen uh, anyone but you? Not yet, but I really want to. Is it, that's good, isn't it? I liked it a lot. Okay, <laughs> I can't wait. I'm gonna again another thing that I'm gonna do this weekend. I'm All gonna right. I'm gonna do the uh, anyone but you hidden life double feature. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> what you need. <laughs> awesome, uh, Brian. What is a remake or adaptation that is better than its source material? So. I got two of these. We don't have to talk about either of them that long. So one, I said the Maltese Falcon. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I, I prefer Raymond Chandler. You okay. know, so like uh, Long Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, love him. Yeah, all those. So Maltese Falcon, like the book is fine. I like it. I understand its its place in the the canon and everything. Sure. I think the movie's incredible. The other great thing about this is there's like two earlier versions of the Maltese Falcon. Are there really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, it's crazy. And like this one, they were just like, I don't know, just do the book. Just literally take the book and shoot it. <laughs> and it's so good. Also, it has Hungry Bogart. Yes. So in terms of it's an adaptation and, you know, if you want to say a remake or whatever, sure. Um, the other one I wanted to throw out was Last of the Mohicans. Um, Interesting. That movie's incredible. I don't care much for the book. In fact, this year, no, last year, because we're now we're in 24. 24. Yeah. Yeah. A um, couple months ago, <laughs> I said to myself, you know who I should try to give another shake to is James Fenimore Cooper. <laughs> um, and I have not done it yet. So maybe uh, the next time I'm on, I'll need to be like, hey, we got to scratch that last of the Mohicans thing. It's really good. <laughs> right. Um, but I tried reading him in high school and was not having it. Gotcha. So, Last of the Mohicans, the movie is a masterpiece. Yes, it and is. And it, it's it's almost like, yeah, how could the book ever be better? What I what I love about that movie is, whenever you try to adapt a classic, um, let me listen. I, that that sentence is two words too long. Whenever you try to adapt, um, there is a real temptation to be precious about every last nuance of the source material. And now that much of what is being adapted is pop culture material, mm-hmm. it, that that has skyrocketed. That that is that is on that approach to storytelling is on steroids and it is bloody 
terrible because it just it does not work. For this, for beyond the fact that it's possible that a lot of these artists, if they had the chance to go back to their work, they would change some shit and cut out some shit for starters. Not every last detail is needed to tell the core story. So when it comes to something like Last of the Mohicans, no, it doesn't adapt every last word and gesture and scene and moment that's in that classic piece because it's like, all right, we're going to take this. We're going to make sure that we get across the core themes and the core idea and make sure we, we do right by the heart of this story. And, you know, if we lose some of the syntax along the way, so be it. What, you know, what somebody like Michael Mann was able to do 32 years ago now versus what your average director and writer for hire who's adapting the next bestseller or God right. help you, the, the big Broadway, you know, super play Jesus, into yeah. a film and they, they just can't. It's because they're like, no, well, we got to tell the thing. Everybody's going to want to pay to see the thing. But meanwhile, Michael Mann is like, I'm going to tell this much of the thing because I want to make sure – I leave myself enough time to film this chase in canoes going across the waterfall. Right. The heart I feel and like, soul of yeah, this. I feel like all that this, is yeah. going to be something that people are going to want to sit and spend We're time We're not splitting with. this one in two just no. so I can talk about whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Thanks, you know, Harry Potter. One of, the, one of the things that I considered for this, but unfortunately I love the book too much, um, was Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Joe Wright version that was written love by Tom version. Stoppard. Yeah, um, I love that version. It's incredible. The music is incredible. The staging is awesome. I remember being like, there's no way they're going to do this well. I like, I, and I like Joe Wright. I know yeah. people have opinions on him. Um, they're actually, wrong. I don't know what the last thing he did that I enjoyed was, but at the moment, did you not like Cyrano? Um, wait, no, hmm? hold on. Did you not like Cyrano? I didn't see Cyrano. I really want to oh, see Cyrano. You must yes. see Cyrano. So that's my problem is that I haven't seen Cyrano yet. Okay. Um, but so I walked in. And the fact that they shucked off trying to make it like a gauzy, you know, merchant ivory period piece. And they really tapped into this whole thing is about performance in society. Let's put it in this theater. Let's have certain people be up high. Let's like, let's really bleed into the artifice of this. Let all the, the, the humanity kind of pop. It was almost like Dogville, a movie that is very divisive, but I liked a lot. Of course you do. you, of course, you rip <laughs> out all this extraneous stuff and you're just left with these people and these emotions. And like, that's what you're getting on the page. You know, Tolstoy can explain a dress, sure. But what he excels at is putting you inside of the head of these characters. And this movie did that as well. But like I said, I love Anna Karenina too much. I can never say it's not as good as the movie. The, the, gotcha. The, gotcha. The okay. All right. Uh, last but not least for now, uh, and and you've named several that, that could apply to this. If you could bring back any artists from the dead, who would you bring back and why? I went with someone modern. I went with someone young, someone who had a lot of promise, um, who I feel like everyone, if he suddenly was like, I'm back, they would be like, holy shit. Hooray. I went with Heath Ledger. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> and got you to curse. So <laughs> I don't have to feel bad anymore. It's like a game. Um <laughs> Um, like I really feel like we were just getting to the beginning of what he could really do. Like he was so talented right from the get go, mm-hmm. but watching his career is kind of interesting because he goes through this stage of being the typical vanity fair cover pretty boy 
Yep. And he kind of shrugs that off kind of quick and decides to start doing some more interesting stuff like Monsters Ball and Brokeback Mountain, you know, like like those kinds of meteor types of roles. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, he's going to go work with Gilliam right, right around the time that he dies. So it's, it, it, yeah, like that, the, what I, what I like about that answer is it's not because you want to prolong it and you want somebody like John Ford to make, you know, 150 movies. It's like, here's somebody whose career was cut short, you know, and you want to see yeah. what else they would do. If you give, if you, even if you gave him 10 more years, you know, I had this conversation the other day about, and it's it's weird to say this, but I had this conversation the other day about John Lennon. John was 40 when he died. Oh my gosh. I yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you consider like how much whether or not he wanted to keep on recording or just be an activist or be an artist or what he wanted to do, he was he we lost him at 40. What would he have done if he'd had even just 10 more years? You know, forget about like living a, a, a so-called normal length of life, even if you just give him 10 more years. That's what I see right. when I when I think of an answer like Heath Ledger's. Same thing, same thing. Heath wasn't that old when he died. How what would he have done with just 10 more years? Yeah, especially because like at, this is like a crass way to look at it, but after the Joker, he could have gotten stuff made. Like oh, yeah. you know, him him doing the Terry Gilliam movie was like that happened because of him. Like he would have probably become another Robert Pattinson like yeah dude who who's like all right look I'm gonna find a cool guy I'm gonna attach to them I'm gonna get this done yeah uh, or or Kristen Stewart mm-hmm. you know like I don't need the, both I, the Twilight people yeah I don't know <laughs> that's the best thing to happen to both of those actors was they left that franchise and they just said I've got enough both of them have said I've got enough money I'm just gonna go do what interests me it's one of those things where it's like there we're you know we've seen it happen a lot where somebody just Back to what I was saying at the beginning about Heath, they start out as the pretty Vanity Fair cover person and you give their career a long enough track and give them just a little bit of trust. And it's like, oh, you've actually got something to say. Exactly. So, all right. I like it. Uh, We will learn more about that's so much about Brian. I'm so thankful. Your answers are always amazing. Thank you for all of them. Um, We will learn more when Brian is back because, you know, we're getting Brian back often. It's a it's an annual occurrence, basically. How many of these questionnaires do you have pre-written? Nine are done. I do not know what the 10th is, but I'm probably going to have to write it this year. Okay. Yeah. So I want to be the guy who forces you to write the new (laughs) (laughs) can be done. Um, We are going to get into the new slang. As I mentioned off the top of the show, the new slang is going to be the iron claw. And we really cannot talk about this movie without talking about stuff that happens late. Um, I feel like it's the kind of thing that's sold with this movie, but if you're the sort of person who wants to go in completely blind, maybe come back after you've seen this movie. And we, we, I think we can both safely say, Go see this movie. Um, yes. It is the Iron Claw in the new slang right after this. Iron Claw is written and directed by Sean Durkin. It stars Zac Efron, 
Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, Maura Turney, Stanley Simmons, Holt McCalney, and Lily James. The Iron Claw is the real-life story of the Vaughn Eric family. Brothers Carrie, Kevin, David, and Mike, who were legends of the Texas pro wrestling circuit in the late 70s and into the 80s. The brothers are all descended from Fritz von Erich, who was a pro wrestler, and from an early age instilled into his children the need to push limits and to be driven to be the best. The story is mostly told through Kevin's eyes, that's Efron, the oldest of the surviving brothers, and the one who embraces the wrestling life the most intently. Through Kevin, we watch as the brothers try to rise above their station, push themselves to succeed, and often battle with demons along the way. The Iron Claw could very easily be a macho movie. It's a classic rock soundtrack. There's a lot of wrestling. There's long montages of working out, pumping iron, toss in a few classic cars and cool hogs, and you have all the makings of a typical guy's movie. And yet... The Iron Claw goes beyond that. But how? So that's where I want to start. Pop quiz, Hotshot. How does this movie avoid being a macho film? It's interesting because it, I think it, it locates the fact that true machismo has a level of emotional vulnerability in it. And so it is a film that has macho people in it being macho, but like understands that there is a falseness to what most people believe that to be there's like a performative nature to it so i think one of the problems is that like when we think back on the action movie stars of yesteryear mm -hmm. um think about die hard sure because we're just coming out of die hard season right you would not care as much about john mcclain if he did not love his wife right and want right. her back and and obviously feel a lot of hurt and pain over the way that their marriage is going and that is something that I think a lot of movies miss because they're just like, well, John McClane, he's like a fast talking quipster, blah, blah, blah. But those quips are like his way of psyching himself up against his insecurities, against the overwhelming odds and against the fear that he's now going to lose his wife to terrorists, not just to L.A. Um, and I think that this movie understands that it understands that the the nature of anyone who is that level of performatively strong and who struggles that hard and tries that hard, there has to be an emotional core driving them. Whether it be the desire to do right by your brothers, to make your father proud, or just to feel some sense of, of completion. It's, it's rarely, if ever, purely about ego. Mm -hmm. It is always about something else. And this movie locates that and then interrogates it and shows it it's very easy to see these, you know, multiple brothers who are just rippling with muscles and so strong and so doodly. And to just be like, I'm making it one. Um, right. My friends and I used to say it in college. I don't think it's like an actual word. No, you know what? Lindsay always <laughs> says, if I can say it, it's a word. <laughs> if I say it and you feel immediately like you understand what I'm saying. Check. Got yeah. it. Right. Okay. So, you know, you see them all together and like you see them when they're like, you know, pumping iron and working out and they are close and they are strong and they you you feel the connection. But you feel that connection just as much when they're listening to their littler brother play music or when they are dancing at someone's wedding. Right. Right. Like that bond is not just in the ring or on the weight bench. It is everywhere. And you need that. Otherwise 
you are just this empty, you know, macho man type of thing without being truly like masculinely powerful. Sure. I, I think to, to, to answer my own question, um, one of the ways that this movie avoids being a macho film is it does not take very long to show its hand that such a demeanor is not a good thing. This could be something that, that a person could say detracts from the movie, but for me, I think it worked. That it does it really, really, really early on, it spells out that, you know, yeah, Fritz is pushing all his kids to be the best, whatever the best, capital T, capital B, happens to be for them. Um, and that that is a bad thing. You know, like he's not he's not even like your typical um, athlete parent, you know, like he's not that typical, like parent screaming from the sidelines during the high school game or, you know, like Lord help you from like, you know, the junior game, you know, and just drilling their kids because they're projecting themselves onto it. He's, he's, he's gone like far and above right. that kind of level of, of drilling and that kind of level of impressing his, failings and his shortcomings onto his children and you know we very quickly see this is bad and this is we don't know what's about to happen i mean you do if you if you can google but we don't know what's about to happen but it's (laughs) probably not going to go well for anybody least of all fritz and i think that's the thing is that it doesn't take long to get to the point if the movie was subtler about it if the movie went two acts of playing up the doodliness of this movie. And yeah, now that's a word. So here's a word. Well, go. Word. <laughs> if, it, if, if, it, if it's spent 90 minutes doing that and then it showed its hand, then I'd say maybe it was in danger of, you know, the next generation who clings to this and who puts this poster in their dorm. Cause you know, it's going to happen. Right. It, um, it would have the fight club problem. Right. Of like, you only made the, the good point at the last 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Like, then I'd say that that would be a problem, but because I feel like it does, it's like, we need to wrap two arms around this concept real fast. Otherwise it's going to get way down the road and it's going to be too late. Well, um, you have I, Kevin walking into his mother's room and saying, dad is too hard on Mickey, Mikey. One of them. Remember. Dave. Yeah. Mike, um, the, the musical one. Sure. And it, he says like, he's being too hard on him. Like he is already located that his father is putting to it. Like I can take it. Carrie can take it. David can take it. The, Michael's not Michael, it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he has already located that and is already saying it. And so you already get on a very basic level. Kevin is tapped in. Kevin has that kind of empathetic understanding. And Fritz is not that guy. He wants all of his sons to follow the same path. And Kevin has already like become more emotionally attuned. He's more evolved. Yeah. Than his father is. Yeah. And Um, it's, um, and it's not, and like, yeah, having that happen almost instantly once that like time jump out of the little prologue happens. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, you know, like, okay, we're, we're already in it. Like, this is it. There's not going to be a moment where he has to learn that there's a problem. Like he already feels the problem, but at the same time, he also feels the push to be the best. Well, I mean, the other thing is, you know, we're, I think we're kind of skipping over the reaction and people couldn't tell that we both enjoy this movie. Oh my God. Uh, to, to, yeah. To a great degree. Yeah. No, it's, I, I, I would say it actually surprised me. I did not actually expect to enjoy it this much. Cause I, I wasn't sure 
what it would have to say. And I think one of the things I one of the things I really dug about it is that for these, I mean, you know, you get it it has things to say about class and about, you know, the kind of communities that the Von Eriks live and thrive in because they are king shits on this turd mountain, as you can tell by <laughs> like their dad glad handing people on their way into church. Like at first yeah. I was like, is he a politician or something like that? Is he, is he a, is he a deacon? Why is he out in front of the church? Like welcoming everybody on their way. And it's like, no, no, that's just Fritz and what he does. Um, yeah. But the thing is, is that there's not a whole lot to this town really, you know, there's, there's a roller rink and there's the wrestling on Friday night and whatever. And there's go down by the river and float along and say, Hey, to your buddies and whatever. But it's like, if you want to make it out, if you want to make something of your life, this is the kind of place that you got to figure out a way to leave. So the kids have like just probably latched onto that so that they can do something else. Well, what's also interesting is that they are there to be that. So it's almost like if your dad took you to a place where there was nothing else so that he could make you focus on doing the other thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, cause they're like, you know, they're going to the sportatorium. So they must be like outside of Dallas somewhere. Yeah. So like, you know, they're not in the sticks sticks, you know, they're, they're still close to a major metropolitan center, but yeah, there's, there's a reason that like they kind of make fun of Mikey for playing music because like in this compound that they've built, that's not a thing that exists. No. Like we we have we have workout equipment in the in the garage. Yeah, if you don't want to go on a run on the property. Like, yeah, if you, if you don't want to be an athlete, you can, you can be a hunter or make a lot of money. That's all that, that that's all that's available to you. You either right. become rich, become you know become a provider, uh, or you're going to make your bones being an athlete of some fashion. Right, and um, five miles down the road, other people are having other lives. Like we see them go to pick up Mikey from a garage. Yeah. Of other kids who are also All playing like music, him. And yeah, doing, like yeah, and and they're like, all right, you know, hope you had fun in La La Land. Back to the farm, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Was there one of the brothers that stood out for you in the course of this movie? I mean, Kevin obviously is is kind of at the fore because he he is the character. He's the lead character. Well, it's all through um, his eyes, right? Yeah, you know, he's he's our point of view character. He's also like, you know, not to be too blunt about it, the only survivor. Um, <laughs> There, I, learned I, think, today, I learned today there was another one. There was another one. Yes. Who also who also died by suicide. I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness. When when we talked about this on my podcast, it, there was a there was an aspect where someone said, like, what do you think? Like, should they have had that? And I was like, absolutely not. It no. would have it would have been either too dark or it would have tipped into comedy, which is a horrible thing to say. Yeah. But like there is a level of of drama that tips into melodrama that then melodrama very easily tips into like camp comedy. Sure. And I think if you have another one bite the dust, I didn't mean for that to be a clear I, here. It could just happen. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, God. I, Our apologies a, to the Van Eyck family. Yeah, I really, I really feel terrible about that. Um, then that's, that's bad. And I think that anyone yeah. who watches this and would complain about that probably doesn't understand how movie making goes and would just be better off reading the Wikipedia article. Um, I think think there's a reason also that like their youngest brother who is well, technically the oldest, but he died at like eight um, is, is not killed on screen because Mm -hmm. you kind of want that to haunt the edges well, same thing too. That Otherwise, I, I, it feels I, like Final Destinations after these guys. Well, you know? Yeah, and it's yeah. Just like yeah. Like, I mean, they, listen. They talk about a curse. If I was a person in their family, I think I would believe it. When you get to 
six children and five don't make it out of, you know, early adulthood mm-hmm. and three of the six die by suicide. You need to start thinking which spiritual deity did I unknowingly <laughs> upset and how can I make this right? Because this has gone beyond the level of tragedy and, it, when, and, and comedy. This is into a whole other realm. Right. It's Greek. It's positively Greek. Very when much Kevin so. names his child, not his last name. Yeah. He's like, we're breaking like, this now. Good. Yeah. Atta boy. Um, I think I, I was really interested with, um, I was really interested with David because he's the one, he kind of seems to get like folded in with a little bit of reluctance. Is it him or Mike that, that, the, that Fritz actually gives him the standings? I think Michael is the one he gives the standing when he's like, you know, uh, we all know that Carrie's my favorite. Yeah. Then comes Kevin, then David, then Michael. But right. you know, the, the, it's the, the standings are always changing. Anyone yeah. can move up. Anyone can move down. Yeah. It's just but like, I, I just, I, David, what I liked about David is, He's like he's not in the wrestling world right from the go. You kind of see him like kind of kind of ease his way into it. I like the fact that he was the one giving Kevin flack for not being great on Mike because I'm not a wrestling fan that I was as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually even realized as I was watching this movie that I'd seen Kerry Von Erich wrestle um, possibly in person too. Um, but I've, I'd seen Carrie Von Eric wrestle and I just totally forgot. I knew the name and I knew like I'd seen like wrestling magazines or there used to be trading cards. And I remember, I remember the name because it's one of those names in the world that actually means something. Right. My, my brother-in-law is a big wrestling guy or was a big wrestling guy. And when I was like, I don't, I, I want to see this movie. I have no idea what it's about. It's a true story. And he looked at me and he said, the Von Erics are the Kennedys of wrestling. Ah. And I was like, oh, okay. I just thought that meant they were like a famous family. I didn't realize that meant that all of them died. Like right. he basically gave me a spoiler. Yeah. And I had no I idea. Didn't tell you. Yeah. But I was um, like, oh, you were talking on many levels. Yeah. But I mean, I love that, you know, like part, like, listen, part of the wrestling gig is being able to be good behind a mic. Like, and some of them, oh my God, yeah. some of them don't make it because they don't have that personality to just talk. And you know? honestly, Zach Efron's performance in this is, I don't want to throw the word revelatory around, but it's revelatory. It's he's way real, better like, than I thought he would be. I, yeah, he's, he is like, he is all kinds of pathos. Like, and him failing at that initial, like ta- pre-tape. Yeah. I was like, Okay, like this, this is like hard to watch. I'm like annoyed by this. And, and and seeing that that wasn't just him like having an off day, that that was like his flaw. Yeah. And seeing how good he is in the physicality and then hearing him talking with his, his wife and everyone else and seeing that like it is the performance aspect that it like, again, just talking about layers, like he really nails it. And yeah, watching David you know, make fun of him from the sidelines, but then actually like come in and be way and better be at like, it. you know, Harley Pratt, like, da, 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 and he's, you know, and then when they're in the, it's, it's, I think it's in the trailer too. when he's like, you know, the, the iron claw, which our father gave to us and which we deliver to you. Like he's got star charisma all over him. And so when he moves up and he gets a chance at the title, it is heartbreaking for Kevin, but it's almost like, well, yeah, man, like you're just, 
you're not as you're just you not don't, as good. you don't have all like you're great as part of the team yeah you can probably play off a few lines like if they need to hand you the mic and you need to say one or two sentences you're probably going to be okay but if you need to stand up there and monologue you are gonna you're gonna get <laughs> in the deep end real yeah. fast and it's yeah. and the, the movie is structurally very intelligent that it has his wife played by lily james when they're first dating mm-hmm. say to him like i don't understand like you're talking about this this title and everything but it's isn't it all fake that might that was one of my favorite moments in the movie that really was because i gotta be honest like again this is not something i'm all over anymore uh i I couldn't tell you who's a heavyweight champion of what now um i know you know but i know the way it works and and again it's something that i did care about a lot as a kid very deeply but i never thought of it that way that there's this whole gamesmanship behind the scene and politics and you know, how can we sell you? What can you do? Are you, yeah. you know, are you whatever? It's like, it's not just about like who's in the best shape because there have been lots of wrestlers that are just, you know, oddballs for whatever reason. And like, oh yeah, we can sell this. Um, you know, and they probably just play the game really well. And, and when it, Kevin says, you know, it, you, you still have to do these things. Like yeah. you still have to get up there. And, and so when they say you're going to win the title or, you know, you're going to go up here, it, it is a promotion. Yeah, you are working f- to get that role, and they're not going to give it. This isn't like casting some die and oh, seven came up. It's your turn. They are watching you to yeah. make sure that you are delivering a performance that they need and building a narrative that they need. And when if he, he says that, it clarifies exactly what he needs to do, and mm-hmm. then you can see him failing. Yeah. And it suddenly like you go from being like this guy is is ripped and is doing these flying leaps and the iron claw and everything. And he's a great. And then he says that and you're like, it makes sense that David, it makes sense that Carrie yeah. are going above him because they are better than him at this one thing. And it's heartbreaking to see him have to settle into that second tier where he's just not going to make it, which is basically what happened to his father. Right. And why his father is pushing them so hard. But he refuses to curdle in the way that his father did. Which, I mean, and that's that's wild, too, because the whole industry is taking off around the time that Kevin's there. When Fritz is doing it, it's this little underground thing that is very regional and, you know, th- there's only so much money to be made. And the brothers, especially Kevin and Carrie, are in it right around the time it's going mainstream. Like, you know, they're in it when ESPN is picking it up. So it's like, you know what? Now there is money to be made. So even if I'm not the headliner, even if I'm not what David is and what Carrie turns out to be, even just by being a B-lister in this world, I'm still probably going to be an A-lister in the world that my dad came through in. But that's not good enough for him because that's not what's been drilled into his head. We haven't talked about Holt McElhaney as Fritz. And Holt McElhaney, first of all, he's been on the scene for a long time. Dude, he's, I have loved Holt McElhaney for upwards of 20 years. He's, 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 he's usually been a that guy. People, you know, we remember, we mentioned it earlier on. People may remember him from Fight Club. Um, he's, he's, he's been in just a ton of stuff. He is incredible in this movie because the thing is, Fritz could very easily become a cartoon. You play this wrong and he just becomes an absolute caricature of an overzealous 
patriarch. And yeah. yet McElhaney finds the way to, you know, bring in the heartbreak that he never made it, bring in the drive that he, he, you know, I think he actually genuinely cares about his family and he does genuinely want them to succeed. He just, of course, has all the wrong tools to do it. And McElhaney nails every bit of that. Yeah. I mean, this, he, look, Holt, McElhaney and I go way back. I, (laughs) he's great in Fight Club. He's, Really, uh, for whatever reason, he sticks out to me in this movie called Below, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, David Tui, Twohi. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Let's go either. with Tui. Yeah, um, he, uh, it's a it's a David Tui directed, you know, actioner, and it's about this uh, haunted World War II submarine. Um, Holt McElhaney's great in it. Holt McElhaney's great in this show called Lights Out. I've never um, seen that, but I do love him in Mindhunter. He's yeah, he's. I mean, I'm glad that he got Mindhunter because I I felt like a lot of people really learned about him in Mindhunter, really like started to come over and see what was good about him in Mindhunter. Yep. He's he's great in when he showed up in Black Hat. I like cheered in the theater. Um, You're that guy. I yeah, I love Hal Bagalani. He's incredible. And so when I saw that he was in this movie, that was enough for me. I was like, it's it. Yeah, I'm here. I'm in. I'm excited for yeah. it. And then, oh, he's really good in Wrath of Man. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just looking at his CV now and going nuts. <laughs> it's, become, it's, it's becoming that podcast. Yes. Um, I also forgot that he was like a two second scene in Justice League as a burglar for some reason. Right. I guess because they're like, who looks like a cartoon drawing of a burglar? <laughs> but he's great. He's great in this. He's great in everything. He's incredibly good at being strong and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am here for it. And in this movie, I, I was almost expecting more vulnerability from him. I did not expect him to be quite so steely and quite so turned off, but it's weird that he's not an out and out villain. He is just clearly a man who is not equipped for this station in life and, and, and is, has allowed his failure to curdle in him. But it's it. I was expecting him to be more of like the pile driving, terrible, evil father, and it's more that he's just like ambivalent. It's 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 the fact that he is so like. Look, I'm just going to tell the boys how I feel about him. I'm going to give him my opinions. I'm going to tell him what they need to do, and that's it. And it, but like that's not enough and too much all at once. And he modulates that incredibly well. It's I think like. The- what really gets me about what McElhaney does with this character is it's all the, it's all the little quirks and the little moments that really drive it home for me. When Kevin first starts seeing his, who will turn out to be his wife, um, Fritz is like, if you don't snatch her up, some other boy will. And it's like, Jesus dad, you know, like, you know, like I, if my father ever said that to me, I'd be like, well, shit, now what the hell do I do? You know, like, but, it, but he does, and he, he says it very matter of factly. He doesn't overplay it. He doesn't mumble it or anything like that. He just, he's very, everything about him is just so very frank. Um, you know, or if, if Frank isn't what he's feeling, it's dismissive and it's not dismissive in a mean way. It's just dismissive in this really, cold gruff way like i'm even thinking about the scene later on when carrie gives him that that pistol and he just 
wants to put it away right away. He doesn't want to look at it. He doesn't want to fire it. Apparently that's a thing. You could tell me more of that than I do. Is that a thing? <laughs> I I don't know. About, I, I've, this is like when, have you ever seen the movie The Edge? Yeah. Yeah. So like in The Edge, there's a point where someone gives someone a knife. Yeah. And another character's like, you got to give him a dollar, you know? And it's like, oh, yes, it's an old superstition. If someone gives you a knife, you give him a dollar so it doesn't cut the friendship. Okay. Oh, and I'm like, okay. That's awesome. I've never heard that before. <laughs> okay. So, so we're, so we're in that territory. All right. Cool. Right. But, but it's that very like, possible that someone out there believes that. Right. I've never and, heard yeah. It. And, and my, like, what I got to believe is so in this world, if Carrie knows that, Fritz knows it too. And yes, he's like, the fact that I'm not doing this, the fact that I'm just putting it right <laughs> in the collection tells you something about what's happening in this moment and what's happening in our friendship or in our relationship, which is bananas because at that point, Carrie is succeeding so very well. And it's like, what the hell do you want from these kids? And that's the thing. It's never well, Carrie had like jumped leagues, right? So there was that aspect too right but i mean it's like he should i I mean maybe it's not just success man it's got to be success within the channel that their father desires the most dear that's that's so i mean that's probably legit like i i I, I have no reason to doubt you that's that's a really good point that's messed up i know it's messed up it's really (laughs) messed up it's so not good. <laughs> it's, that is not at all doodly. Um, no, it's the antithesis of doodliness. Um, uh, we also have in this movie what I was really fascinated with. In amongst all of this testosterone and machismo, we have Lily James as Pam and we have Maura Turney as Doris. Um, these two women fascinated the shit out of me. They are so good. I, so I've never really liked Lily James in anything. I don't think. I mean, she's um, never given a ton to do, to be honest. Like she really just, she, a lot of the movies that they cast her in, she's, she's cast to show up and be charming. Yeah. Which like, she's fine at, but like, I'm thinking of like baby driver. Yeah. But, eh, sure. Why not? Yesterday. Same thing. Um, she's really good in this movie. Uh, she's, Really, like, I just was watching her. And I'm like, I suddenly see the appeal of Lily James. And I see the way that she could be deployed properly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people are just like, we've got a pretty woman with a charming smile. Right. Story. Yeah. And this movie, on the other hand, is like, hey, what if we gave her something to do and bonded her emotionally with another character who's not a semi-mute guy who listens to cassette tapes all the time? Right. Right. So, yeah, that worked really well. Um, <laughs> she's really good in this. And Maura Tierney in this movie, in what on paper feels like a thankless role, is actually rocking it real hard. The scene where she is distressed over the fact that she is wearing the same dress to one son's funeral. That, that, that gutted funeral. me. That absolutely shredded me. The sec, like the, you know, it starts with the it starts with the camera on the dress, and then it cuts to her. And I'm like, mm. same sort of thing. What we were talking about earlier of filmmaking without using an audible language. I'm like, you have told me so much in two shots, then you probably could have in an entire movie. Yeah, and it's, it's and and so much of that hangs on the way that Tierney wears that on her face and in her posture. Right. And, and, and just the way that she talks about it and the way that she responds to it. And then later on in the movie, after everyone's dead and she 
you know, kind of sets the new tone with Fritz. Yeah. I mean, she's she's doing great work in this. Also, like, we haven't really spoken his name yet. Writer-director Sean Durkin. Yeah. Knocked it out of the park with this one. Just talking about the direction, the visual storytelling. The the writing is great, you know. It's a complete work. It's an absolutely complete yeah. work. Like, I mean, the it, you the, watch this movie and you're like, oh, this is it. This is a great movie. Yeah. The only, I mean, I mean, the only thing I may fault Durkin for in this movie that the, the only thing that let, had me scratch in my head um, is I don't entirely understand why Carrie was kept on the sidelines for 35 minutes. Like I, I knew Carrie was a thing because I was coming in knowing that Carrie Von Eric is a thing. And because mm-hmm. Fritz mentions him as his favorite, but yeah. we don't see the favorite for a good solid 35, 40 minutes. And he, I'm like, why? He, why are we not to like mystery? He's not, not you know? To, yeah. Not to say that I'm justifying it, but I think like the way that it affected me was that he says Carrie's the favorite. And I'm like, well, who's this Carrie guy? I haven't seen him yet. And right. Kevin seems like he's doing great. Yeah. And then David starts doing awesome. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. Kevin just got knocked down a bit. But Kevin is like, okay, but Carrie is still somewhere else doing something else. So he is not a concern. And then when we don't go to the Olympics, Carrie comes home and suddenly you're like, "Uh uh-oh, golden child Carrie is here. And so you get the kind of sensation of like this person who is not figuring in at all into the calculus of the home life at least yeah now he's suddenly there everything's off balance and suddenly he's the one who's going for the the belt it's like david has passed right and it's just like okay well now one of you's got to do it and carrie's like well i'm the best so it's gonna be me yeah i um and also it's 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 jeremy allen white who is having a moment now oh yeah um yeah he can do no wrong Right. So, so I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. If somebody is, if somebody did to walk into this movie late, yeah, you know, a la Jefferson and what did I miss in Hamilton? <laughs> yeah, I guess it can be white because it, you know he's he's doing his thing, and you know you expect him to walk in and yell cousin. Um, Weird that he is like the biggest name in this movie presently. Because because he's having his moment, right? Like I mean, yeah. you know, like, I don't know when were, this movie was shot. I assume that at that point he'd already done at least the first season of The Bear. I would. I mean, he's he's a lot bigger in this movie than he ever is in the bear. He's right, he's never this jacked. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he, now I'm wondering if season three of the bear are they going to like have him extra baggy, <laughs> like chef whites for yeah, a little no, while? Yeah, just to get him back to. I wonder size. about like when you get that swole, like how quickly do you revert back to normal? Because those muscles are not sustainable. No. No, I mean, and that's like the, it's, it, that's the thing too, is like this movie does not pull its punch about how terrible, like the, the life choices of a lot of these wrestlers was, um, you know, like there, there's a lot of them from this era that are gone. And along with the fact that they're making their living smacking their head around nightly, um, which, you know, okay. Um, yeah, they are, they are getting far more ripped than the human body is meant to be. And they're not doing it in a way that's sustainable. And that's the thing, like, you know, you've got, you've got this question in there of, was that what happened to David? Like Kevin actually has no idea. And I do believe that 
somebody who did not have that kind of education probably did not fully understand the consequences of what he was putting into his body and think that 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 was what happened. It's, it's not a stretch to see them after they're just working their bodies so hard. And there's a lot of glory shots of the needles that they're putting into their bodies of like what kind of damage it can do inside when the body's like, what the shit are you doing to me? Um, the one thing I got to ask though aloud, and I, you know, I think I have my own answer, but I'm not sure. Is this movie misery porn? I don't think so. Um, one of the reasons that I don't think so is that the movie is itself very upset about what's happening. Yeah. There's in, in a misery porn film, it's like the, the sadness is the point. Right. Um, much as I wouldn't say that Manchester by the sea is misery porn. I think also what helps is that they, each of them end on again, not like triumph, but a note of hope. I mean, this movie was very good, but it's that final exchange with his sons, with mm-hmm. Kevin and his sons that yeah. really tipped it over into being like incredible for me when he like misery porn is, is to my mind usually like, Oh, this poor, human being who has no uh agency all this bad stuff is happening to them woe is me kevin has a lot of agency kevin is mad at his dad because he told his father to watch carrie yeah yeah <laughs> um and his dad didn't like kevin is 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 a, an agent full like very active participant in all of this and when carrie dies and they have the the image of him rowing and meeting his other brothers including including the one that's still a boy which um is like is really rough i sometimes think about the fact that my my best friend killed himself when i was 19 Mm -hmm. um and when i think about him i still i have to think about a 19 19 year old version of him yeah and so i will have these moments where i'm like like i'll have i'll have dreams where i meet him again and he's alive but we are both in that moment 19 because i think my brain understands it would be fucking weird sorry for me as a 36 year old to be chilling out with a 19 19 year old old. yeah and like i i think about that sometimes of like similarly like oh my ex from high school who i like had to break up with in in like the freshman year of college and thinking back on that and being like was that like one of the most meaningful relationships like is that something and then i'm like right i'm thinking about like an 18 year old girl yeah but your your mind regresses and morphs everything um and so to see them show up and for him to kneel down and say like you must be my older brother and it's just like yeah like that is but like he's so young. Like it's, you've lost this person at such a young age. And there's something beautiful in that. Even if it's just what Kevin is picturing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the fact that he, when he was talking to his, his wife, uh, Lily James, um, and saying like, what I want from my life is I want to be with my brothers. Yeah. And he lays down his final brother and envisions this, this journey through like, you know, the Texas, you know, river. It's a little treacly, but I also feel like we get enough of a sense of Kevin that like Kevin is, is a romantic and he would think that. He would. that would be what gets him through. And I mean, like, you know, the afterlife has been pictured a trillion different ways through the course of film history. And I got to admit that that visualization of it was really sweet and really tender. Um, it really goes counter 
to a lot of the toxicity that we've been just wading through for at that point, like two hours, you know, and that's the thing is like, you know, if this movie really wants to hammer home a point, it's toxic masculinity is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, just in case anybody was unclear. Um, that's, that's the ultimate point of this movie, but it's like, we want to provide a counterweight to that. And it's along with the fact that it's that what, what this one particular young man envisions it's how these other young men would act. And that's the thing is none of them are acting out of character, you know, in that moment that Kevin is supposedly visualizing or that we are potentially glimpsing into the other side. None of those three, when their older, younger brother is there are acting out of sorts. They're all acting in the way that we have learned them to be over the course of this movie. And yet it's not, you know, it's not competitive. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not macho to go back to how we started this whole conversation. Right. It's very tender. It's very loving. It's, it's, it's embracing just humanity, you know? And, and yeah, it's that, I, that's a good point. That is that key ingredient is probably what saves this from just being life was shit for this family. And we're going to show you why. Well, also because it, a misery porn movie kind of like usually avoids any concept of like, that's not the only thing. There's other stuff happening. I remember what, again, when my friend died and then shortly after that, my uncle died. There's a lot of death for like a, I think I was 20 at the time or like had just turned from 19 to 20. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to go through. And yeah. someone said like, if you don't stay around, you can't get better. Um, and it's not like another thing I heard was it's not okay and that's okay. Like there was a lot of, of stuff like that where it's like, this is a facet, but you don't understand how much other stuff is going to fold in. So when he is sitting there watching his sons and, yeah. you know, golly knows what he's thinking in that moment. Probably like I was once that young with my brothers and he starts crying. Sure. And then his, his sons come over to him and they're like, what's wrong, dad? And, and he's not saying like, I've had a sh- terrible, miserable life and everything sucks. He, states openly what the loss is yeah and he says i used to be a brother and then his sons say well we can be your brothers which is like exactly what a child would say like i have a daughter who says the most beautiful simple stuff to me and it breaks my heart that life isn't as simple as she thinks it is and when he says that and they all start hugging again that's that's that is locating and activating and and really engaging with the vulnerability that makes someone need to be strong. Yeah. And the the no, the knowledge that he can be in that moment vulnerable with his sons and that they're going to support each other. And like that is sometimes I think like about how depressed I was back then and have been throughout a lot of my life. And then I like think about the moment when I get to take my daughter to the movie theater to see my neighbor Totoro on the big screen or something or when she like said to me last night like we're best friends aren't we and i was like yeah we are like (laughs) things like that are the things that you stick around for and that move you beyond that because life will i guarantee you be filled with tragedy but the thing that keeps it from just being a tragedy is the knowledge that other things will happen and those things will not be tragedies and it's the balance of those two and this movie balances that perfectly if i wanted to point people towards a film that breaks down 
toxic masculinity because I think that that's a phrase that the uh, the average layperson does not understand. You know, it's it's become more and more spoken over the last five or ten years, but to a lot of corners of the world, like where the Von Erics come from, it might I may as well be speaking Aramaic. If I wanted to point somebody towards what does that look like, I would say just watch this. You know, just watch how burying your feelings is bad. Watch how really trying to wring every last ounce of success out of your family is bad. Watch how, you know, acting like the world is yours. And meanwhile, inside you are just a scared shitless little boy is bad. This movie is, has a way to paint it with the most intricate brush. And I love it for that. There's this real fear in the West, especially, and, and, you know, in certain corners of the West, especially that to be a different kind of man is a show of weakness that mm-hmm. to be vulnerable and to be aware of your influence on the world is a sign of somehow being soft. And I like, I, we got to get past that. You know, like well, it's, it's interesting is you look at these old movies and the people didn't have no emotions. No, you know, like Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca is wounded. Yeah. To, to Catatonia over this woman leaving him. Like yeah. his massive sadness in that movie is a woman didn't get on a train with him. Like yeah. it's not even that she, she sent a note. Was, I mean, she, at least yeah. she, you know, there's some and, people who don't that, even get the note. But that pain has destroyed him. You can't have a character who's just, I actually have no feelings. Yeah. It has like, and I keep telling my daughter this. I'm like, cause like we'll leave my grandparents' house and she will be crying in the airport. And then she'll look at me and I, I'm like, you know, we have to get through security. I understand that you're feeling sadness right now. Yeah. However, we need to make our plane. And yeah. then she'll ask me like, do you get sad when we leave Mimi and grandpa's? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She's like, you don't cry. I was like, I don't, first of all, I, I don't tell her this, but like, I don't cry at a lot of things. But I said, you know, you, you have to understand that like sadness is a thing and it exists, but like life is still going on and you need to make space for it to happen in a constructive way. And you're lucky because I'm here to like do everything for you. (laughs) So you have the luxury of being as sad as you possibly can be, but I have to feel it and handle it and deal with it and use it. So when I'm feeling sad, I know that I need to make a change or I know that I love someone, but I also am at the point where I can tell myself I have said goodbye to my parents many times and I will see them again. But this just lets me know that I still really care about them. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, I'm not telling her no. like a man doesn't cry in public, Cora. No, but I mean, like, <laughs> like you know, that's that's what a lot of kids uh, kids are told. Don't be so sensitive. Boys especially are told don't be so sensitive. Your answer is the correct answer of yes, I'm sad, but one, I need to be able to take that sadness and do something with it. Two, we still got to do shit, so I got to hold on to my sadness <laughs> until I have the time. We uh, we end every matinee cast with a souvenir or something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Uh, Brian J. Rowan, what would be your souvenir from the Iron Claw? You know, that, that gun was really nice, but uh, it's <laughs> kind of tainted now. Um, <laughs> Good work. <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's a lot. There's a lot amongst it that that i find interesting you know i always i always tend to take something tangible yeah um 
honestly, the, the belt's really cool. I don't know. Like, I, I know that's like simple to say, but like everyone's talking about the belt, but like the belts are cool. Yeah. If there was ever a moment when I liked wrestling, yeah, it was just because of the belts. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Also, I, I like, and this is way too big for me to take, but the sportatorium, <laughs> first of all, great name. Yeah. Second of all, I just want to go there and see it if it still exists. Right. Because right. what, what a, like that just, it feels like you'd walk in there and you'd still feel the energy. I mean, you're 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 tipping towards what my souvenir would be. I want to go to one of these cards, but back when it was regional, when they were ultra tanned, ultra blonde, horribly racist, just you know, <laughs> concussions galore. Just because, like, the thing is, like, that would probably be a really cool thing to do on a Saturday night in that town, and that was just not my reality growing up. So I really want to like embrace the Southern wrestling late seventies, early eighties, just one time. If I could go back in a time machine and watch, you know, Harley race fight, Carrie Von Eric in, you know, Waco at that sportatorium on a Saturday night. That sounds incredible to me. Well, we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. I think we've probably already sold this thing, but uh, Brian J. Rowan, what do we give the iron claw Four stars? Yeah. You know what? Like I was sitting on a three and a half with the whole Carrie isn't, shown until later nitpick but i i think you you sold me on I that did it. Point. yeah well done this is, a, <laughs> yeah, this is a four-star movie this is one of the best movies of the year um i really hope people do catch up with it it's it's really well done like the thing is it didn't have to be this movie it could have just been a wrestling movie and it would have made money and it would have been the thing but the fact that it yeah. decides to use this as a framework to tell a better story I think it's fantastic. You know, hey, maybe you hate this movie. Maybe you think that it's incredible and it's a new masterpiece and we're not loving it enough. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca. Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of the Iron Claw? We are going to take a very quick break right now and uh, flip the record over to play the other side right after this. We are back. It's Matt and Acast 319. He is Brian Rowan. I am Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about the Iron Claw, all things wrestling, all things masculinity, all things grief, all things, all things, really. It's, it's you know, you never know what you're going to get when we sit down and start talking. That's, that's the thing. Sometimes it's just absolute shenanigans. Once in a while, we're pretty good for a pearl. And I think this is one of those the, the latter um it's the other side it's the point of the podcast where we talk about other movies further reading uh you know good companion pieces to the story at hand um and usually i let the guests go first but i'm feeling ornery today so i'm going to take the lead and uh, talk about my first selection first um i was fixated on this idea of a, a story of toxic masculinity and specifically how it applies to somebody who really shouldn't have that in their life because they have so much going for them. I went back to Raging Bull, Martin Scorsese, oh, yeah. 1980. Um, so we actually did a whole episode dedicated to Raging Bull because um, every year on my birthday, we talk about one of my favorite movies and one year um, – you know, dear friend of the show, Andrew Robinson and I decided we were going to talk about Raging Bull at the time. It was like 
you know, somewhere in the middle of my top 10 movies of all time. And I watched it again as an older person and a slightly more enlightened person. And I was like, I kind of hate this movie now. I don't hate it. That, that, that's, that's going a little far. Hate this movie is, is, is a little much. But I'm like, this story now is grotesque to me. Where before I thought it was just kind of a bummer. Now I look at this story and I'm like, this is absolutely awful. And oddly enough, it's the kind of story that Scorsese tells over and over and over and over, which is weird to me. But Raging Bull, um, you know, similar world, you know, a boxer and a wrestler, there's kind of a fine line between the two. Um, another movie that's incredibly handsome, Raging Bull is doing things directorially that's like, miles ahead of what the iron claw will do and that's not necessarily a knock on iron claw it's just that raging bull is a masterpiece you know um but at its heart there's it's the story of this man who should by all accounts be man enough and yet he is not at any turn like he's you know just there in no realm is he what he should be. And I feel like that, that would make a great marriage with the iron claw to watch these two stories of just terrible examples of masculinity. See, I, what's funny is I latch on to, um, Kevin being like an example of good masculinity. And you're like, no, let's focus on the bad. Let's, let's <laughs> well, no, like, right I, yeah. It's, I'm I, the, Kevin is Kevin is the he is the beating heart of that movie. And he's what makes that movie great. When I come back to that movie in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, it's probably going to age like fine wine. Yeah. Versus watching raging bull again. And I'm like, why am I spending three hours <laughs> with, with this, with these brothers? Bastard. You know, yeah. seriously, and, and it's and it it it's it, it's a theme. I I don't get me wrong. I adore Scorsese. Love him. Love him. Love him. One of my mm -hmm. favorite directors ever. But so many of the stories he tells, I'm like, why the hell are we spending so much time with these despicable human beings? Because after a certain point, I understand that you know we should idolize them, but we also need to understand how flawed they are. I think mm -hmm. you can do that in two or three tries. I don't really think you need to keep going back to that well to prove your point. Because you said, why am I spending time with these two brothers? Okay. I've got a movie. What do you got? But in this movie, these two fighters are brothers? Oh, my good Movie Warrior. Wow. <laughs> did, you, did you pick up on that? That was like the drop line in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> where it's just like these two fighters are brothers like it's like oh my god i love that it's the twist yeah which is funny because in the movie it's not a twist at all i don't think i'm pretty positive that like by the end of the first act you are aware of the fact that these two guys are brothers. yeah but to the world of this movie it's a shock right. well what's crazy is and this kind of gives you this is why i like never trust a trailer yeah. because in i saw that trailer and i was like oh my god like that's how it's gonna be like uh but then in the movie, in the movie, when he says that, it's not mournful per se, but it's much more understated. And he's it's not like, whoa, these two fighters are brothers. He's like, we have just learned that like the two finalists, you know, about our brothers. And it's just like, right. Yeah. Like a human would say it. <laughs> um, Warrior's an incredible movie. I love Gavin O'Connor. Um, Gavin O'Connor's great. Miracle's a really good movie. Um I'll tell you what else. The Way Back is a fantastic movie. 
Have you seen I, The Way Back? I think so. I always ben get Affleck con- is always a get drunk confu- basketball coach. Okay, I get it confused with The Way Way Back. No, it is not. It is only one way. Uh, <laughs> no, so yeah, it's he he um, wrote it. Um, or no, he directed it, and it's 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 so good. The Way Back is incredible, but it doesn't have anything to do with this movie. Um, it is another movie about like sad people doing sad things and trying to be not sad. Warrior, on the other hand, is about two men at very different places in their lives, each of whom believes that the best way to change their stars is to win. Uh, I think the, the, the tournament is called Sparta. Sure. Um, it's a mixed martial arts tournament and they are brothers. Um, and what's, what's interesting is one of them went to war and the other one is a, uh, school teacher. One of them starts working with their insanely alcoholic father, who is very estranged from the family. And the other is, um, working with like an actual trainer and it's it's oh it's everything that you want from a movie like this. It is again, it locates that vulnerability. Um, it it holds on to it. These are two guys who are from very different worlds because they kind of got split up when they were younger. And it's just oh man, it's so good. It's it's I mean, Tom Hardy is doing like one of his earliest examples of he's like, I'm strong and I mumble and no one can understand what I'm saying, but yeah, I'm yeah. in pain. Joel Edgerton, this is the movie that is the reason that I will never not like him. Um, he's doing great work in it as, you know, this teacher who's trying to, like, save his house or whatever. You know what's really awesome is Jennifer Morrison in this movie. But she is so fierce and so supportive. And there is a cut in this movie to her listening to the match on, like, radio that's awesome. And Nick Nolte, drunk and storming through a hotel room and screaming to Ahab to turn the ship around because he's listening to Moby Dick on tape. Yeah. Is so affecting. This movie rules. This is, this is great. It's, it is a more actiony kind of story in the same vein. I mean, what I dig about this movie, I don't love this movie, but I do like this movie. Um, Well, hold on, hold on. Because the thing is (laughs) that kind of like what we were talking about earlier with Tony Scott is if you get a storyteller who is not Gavin O'Connor to make this movie, it gets mm-hmm. real dumb real fast. It, it, it becomes, we've just learned that the finalists are murdered. <laughs> like that's, yeah. you know, that's what it becomes, but it's, it's totally, it, it is legitimately that change in the tone of voice yeah. that tells you everything you need to know about the movie. It could be. And the movie that we are all lucky. that it Yeah. Actually- On the surface, this should be, this should be pretty dumb. But it's really not. It's 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 well made. It's well acted. Like everything about it is really well done. Um, you know, you've got like the, it doesn't hurt that the two guys front and center are both great actors. You know, like it kind of they're they're both still yeah. on their way up. You know, Edgerton was kind of just coming off Animal Kingdom. Tom Hardy hadn't really mumbled his way through Bane yet. Uh, I think this is like right after Inception, so he probably would have made this movie after that payday and he like he wasn't you know getting the pay raise so he was still working his way up the line um yeah and they're and they're both and they're both fantastic actors they both do really well both you know in the ring with the physicality and outside of it you know in terms of showing you why they're there and and you know not not taking joy in this because it's, it's a weird no. thing is when it comes to stuff like the typical macho pastimes, football, wrestling, boxing, MMA, you know, I kind of feel like the fans take more joy in it than the actual participants. 
Um, well, my other uh, selection for the other side, it, it's kind of academic, but it's a movie that I don't feel like enough people saw, and it's a, feel, it's a movie I almost worry is getting forgotten. Um, I wanted to talk about the other Sean Durkin movie, Martha Marcy May Marlene, <laughs> starring Elizabeth Olsen, starring John Hawks. It's actually Elizabeth Olsen's first uh, role. Like it, it's, a, it's almost like an introducing Elizabeth Olsen, um, but it's, it's her film debut. She just acts circles around everybody, basically. And it, that's no small feat because she's in scenes with Sarah Paulson and Hugh Dancy mm-hmm. and John Hawks. Um, love this movie so much because so much of what this story of a person traumatized and trying to break out of a cult could be could be terribly misplayed in the hands of somebody who does not have any grasp of the story they're trying to tell and everybody has to buy in and everybody bought in and mm-hmm. Durkin tells it so well Hawks does so well Olsen does so well oh, Paulson Dancy it is unsurpassed. yeah it is so good you sort of see some of the approach to this movie you see in Iron Claw specifically with the photography because I remember the one thing that really jumped out at me watching Martha Marcy May Marlene is that and if people listen close they can hear me deliberately <laughs> saying those names <laughs> uh, but one of the things that really jumped out at me was there were several scenes that almost looked underexposed mm-hmm. you know like they look like old photographs back when we used to shoot film where you could tell that the photo lab had pushed it just a little bit. And the colors were all muddy and gray and green and Brown. And the thing is Durkin is doing that by choice. Again, you know, he's not doing it because he's incapable. He's doing it because it's the aesthetic he's going for. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever really seen that done on purpose. He does it a teeny, teeny little bit in iron claw, like blink and you'll miss it. But seeing that and seeing those kind of that approach to, her memories and what she's gone through and what she experienced and what she's trying to get away from um, was so good. And just, yeah, everything about this movie is fantastic. And like, this is filmmaking at its highest level. And yet I feel like not nearly enough people have seen this movie. I, I want to say that I definitely saw Martha Marcy May Merlene mm-hmm. nailed it um, <laughs> in the theater. And I'm almost positive that I saw it the same weekend that I saw Melancholia. That would track. And that was a hell of a weekend. That yeah. was like Were a you weekend okay? where <laughs> I am. Um, I'm probably a fine ish as fine as I can be, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, it's funny cause I'm trying to look it up and it just, I'm to be keeps throwing women who are actually named Marcy at me. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, they were both 2011. So I believe that my memory serves me correctly on this and that I saw both of them. And that was a weekend where I was like, I have seen two masterpieces. Yeah. Like, what other weekend could possibly live up to this? And to be fair, I don't think any weekend ever really has. (laughs) I mean, it was, I I saw that one at TIFF that year. I saw that one at, at TIFF 2011, which was a really good TIFF because Drive was at that TIFF. 
Um, yeah. You know, Shame was at that TIFF. Um, God, that is that. Oh, man. Is 2011 like the best year for movies ever? <laughs> it could be. Shame um, is another one that I love where people are like, okay, that tracks. <laughs> yes, I, I think we've had that conversation. But yeah, <laughs> this this movie, it's like if you if you love the Iron Claw and you want, you're like, oh, I wonder what else this guy has done. And you say you find yourself looking up Marthy Marcy May Marlene. Spend the time with it because it is such a good movie. And I really don't know why Durkin hasn't worked more. He probably maybe he doesn't need to or doesn't want to. I don't know. But so far, this guy, like his two feature films in theaters, have both been incredible. And I will I will be there for anything this guy does. That is episode 319 of the Matinee Cast. I am so bloody thankful Brian Rowan was able to drop by again. Come on back on Monday, January 29th for episode 320. I believe we are going to talk about All of Us Strangers. That's what it's called, right? Yes. Good. Uh, Brian can be found on the film stage. Uh, this is going to be going up on Monday. What are you guys doing soon that you want to plug? Not five hours ago. Now, oh my God, at this point, I recorded an episode on Poor Things uh, for my podcast, The Film Stage Show. So look for that. We 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 are slowly working our way through all of the awards bait stuff that I came mean, out. It, in like it all December. it all really came in a clump. This it comes year. in a clump every year. No, the but year. this year especially, like Jan- December so was just, December was thin pickings and i it's it's and then, like, too the afraid day after yeah. the day after christmas they were everything all there. came yeah. out all at yeah. once yeah. i was Thanks. like really no one wants to take the december 7th week yeah yeah but anyway um so we're doing that um then we're doing ferrari we've got a bunch coming out because again oh, you guys are talking about films. ferrari i, I enjoyed t- ferrari i i i, I gotta tune into that <laughs> I am positive I will be the only person who liked Ferrari. <laughs> I'm on pretty. That podcast. I, I I didn't dislike Ferrari, but um, I can see how people do. Uh, I can also see how a lot of people are going to go into Ferrari and not expect what they get. If you go to inkwellwhiskey.com, you can see my whiskey that I make. Please and do. If you're in the DC area, come and drink my whiskey. <laughs> I uh, I would love some free samples, but I mean, there's a border in the way, and I can't. I imagine. About, it's hard enough to ship within the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what customs would do. Yeah. Um, and if people are, are you still on the are you still on the Twitter? I am. I am on the Twitter. Oh yeah, I, 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 I still bug you there. I'm also yeah. That's how you found me. Um, <laughs> you just don't email me or text me. Yeah. Um. Okay, this is the great thing about me. I have such a stranglehold on my brand. I can be found on literally every social media site that I'm a part of <laughs> at Brian J. Rowan. Your branding game is strong. My site is the matinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes there. You can also find them in the usual places, Spotify, uh, Google Play, Apple, you name it. Um, if there's any odd place that you're using, any new platform that's super cool and you think is intuitive and you, you think I should put my show there, let me know. Um, I'll totally do it. doesn't take me very long. You can get new episodes for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on the Iron Claw can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email me, Brian at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And then there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Rowan? I don't believe so. I feel as though you have wrung my brain out and nothing remains. <laughs> well, good for us that it's the end of the night and we're both probably going to hit the hay, unless you're going to do some drinking first, which I don't recommend, but whatever uh, whatever floats your boat. For, I'm going to have an apple and go to bed. Attaboy. For Brian, <laughs> I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.